Welcome to the Air Combat Simulation Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Together with content creators, mission builders, experts, and enthusiasts, we explore the comprehensive world of combat aircraft simulation. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Air Combat Sim podcast. It's episode, uh, gosh, I don't know. Oh, you'll find it on the cover, I guess. Higher uh, than four. Losing track. <laughs> yeah, higher than four. <laughs> and so today we have a rather unconventional episode, uh, at least from the point of view that we're always or normally doing, because we're going to talk about DCS, but someone who's not yet a DCS player, but has a lot to offer, I think, to all of you guys and the whole community. Uh, so, Ward Much, Carol. Hi, Much. Hi, BD. How are you? Hello, RG. Hey, Cosmo. Hello. Good to see you guys. Welcome. Yeah, so, yeah, we're recording it. Uh, what is it? It's November 28th. But we, we know in the DCS world community or, or, or rather live that we, we have Apache pushed to January, right Cosmo? Yep, yep, slowing down, but that's okay. It, you gotta, it's like a fine wine, so it's gonna take a little bit longer. That's okay. Probably, hopefully when you're listening to this, it's it's still not next year, <laughs> uh, but we'll see how it goes with <laughs> rolling this out. But uh, anyway, um, as I said, it's rather a conventional and conventional episode, uh, so we, we just believe that, oh, that that Mooch, as a person who has a lot of experience, knowledge, and great ability to tell the stories, as you probably have seen or will see in this channel, uh, will be able to bring to the whole DCS World community. And there's a few topics we'd like to talk about. But first, Mooch, if you can maybe tell a little bit about yourself, your background, history, and what you're doing now. So I was raised by a Marine Corps attack pilot. Um, Lived on base at Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point in North Carolina for my high school years. Wound up selecting the Naval Academy as my college, so spent four years in Annapolis as a midshipman and selected Naval Flight Officer for my service selection when I was a senior. Went down to flight school, did pretty well, and wound up getting my choice, which was F-14 Rio, and also got my choice of duty station, Basically, in those days, it was either Miramar or Oceana. I'm an East Coast kind of guy, so I went to Oceana. Went through VF-101. The RAG is a Cat 1, including the TARP syllabus, the reconnaissance pod syllabus at the end of that, and then wound up going to a TARP squadron, VF-32, aboard the USS Independence. I went right on cruise. I was kind of like the number one draft pick out of my RAG class, went right on deployment aboard one of the oldest carriers in the Navy at the time a conventional carrier, and had a whirlwind cruise. Went through the Suez Canal, did an exercise against the Omanis, went through Star Wars Canyon there, very exciting bilateral exercise. Did a port call in Singapore, which halfway around the world, unusual for an East Coast cruise, East Coast carrier to go to Singapore. That was fantastic. And also operated in the North Arabian Sea. This is before a carrier would go into the Gulf itself. That was unheard of 
in the 1983-84 timeframe. It took actually Desert Storm to start driving aircraft carriers into the Persian Gulf. So did my first intercept of a real-world airplane from an Alert 5 status. It was an Iranian P-3, and then also intercepted a couple of Russian AN-22s that were coming out of Karachi, Pakistan. So very exciting stuff. Operated in the 6th Fleet Area of Responsibility in the Mediterranean, and the what was called NAVSENT. This is before we established 5th Fleet also in the uh, North Arabian Sea. So good stuff. Came back. Left CAG-6, went to CAG-3, did a turnaround training cycle, went aboard the USS John F. Kennedy for my second cruise. And this was in the 84-85 timeframe, exclusively in the Mediterranean. So again, great exercises like display of determination and Moroccan Eagle and all kinds of other good stuff and cat and mouse with the Soviets in the Mediterranean. So basically Cold War type of action a launching on the alert, the F-14 was exclusively an air-to-air platform at this time. I was flying the F-14A. So went from there to finished up my tour at as a Cat 1 and VF-32, my Nugget tour, and went to VT-86 to be a Rio flight instructor down in Pensacola. So now I'm teaching folks who've just selected Rio how to run intercepts is basically what we did down there at Pensacola. But I was only down there for a year and I got picked up to be the editor of Approach Magazine, which is the Naval Aviation Safety Magazine at the Naval Safety Center. And while I was there, I wound up flying with the aggressor squadron at Oceana a lot, VF-43. So I flew F-5F, TA-4, F-16N, got a lot of stick time, and got real good at fighting those airplanes as well as flying form. And pilots, if they trusted you, would basically let you fly the airplane you know, from launch to land. It was a lot of fun. So really got my co-pilot savvy up to speed in a very unorthodox way. And uh, went from there to my second fleet tour. I was very lucky. I didn't have to go do a ship's company tour, which most people in my career trajectory would have done. I got to go back to a fighter squadron. So I went to a squadron that had brand new F-14, what we called the A+. In 1991, a couple of months later, it was redesignated the F-14B. So this is not the D. It's basically an F-14A with different engines and a few other different bells and whistles. The different engine is instead of the Pratt & Whitney TF-30, which is problematic, prone to compressor stalls as documented in the movie Top Gun and other places. That's not hyperbole. That airplane did have a tendency to compressor stall. The GE F-110 was a fantastic engine used by the Air Force in everything from the B-1 to their version of the F-16. Cool airplane, great squadron. It was great to be what we call a super junior officer, super J.O., senior lieutenant, because basically you got to do all the cool stuff. didn't really have any responsibility. And uh, also deployed on my first nuclear aircraft carrier, the USS Eisenhower, and went on cruise uh, in the Mediterranean Went to now the Persian Gulf. That was the first time I actually pulled into the Persian Gulf proper. And we were the first carrier on scene after Desert Storm. Still technically Desert Storm, um, but the hostilities had ended. It was like showing up the morning after a really wild party. Um, Everything was broken. The highway to hell was strewn with, with vehicles. Bridges were blown out. 
Oil fires were raging. It looked really dystopian. It was, it was kind of eerie, to put it mildly. Um, so did that for a few months, pulled into Dubai for the first time ever. And Dubai in 1991 looked nothing like what it looks now. It was basically one hotel and a couple of superhighways. The hotel was the Hilton. They had a cool beach club, and they had this cool shish kebab buffet that they would serve on the beach. It was a lot of fun. And we played golf at the one course. It was a par three course and had a good time. So it was good liberty, but it wasn't like Dubai is today. Dubai, as everybody knows today, is a megatropolis. Back then it wasn't so much. So came back out of the Gulf, headed back to the Med, going back to the Suez again. And we get the word that we're not going home as planned. We're turning right once we exit the Med, go by the, the Rock of Gibraltar, and going to the northern Atlantic. We're going to do an exercise. Now, I should also mention, as I've documented on the channel several times, that our air wing landing signal officer was our good friend, Kevin Miller, Hoser. And so that's where Hoser and I got to be very good friends. Uh, and as I've mentioned uh, on the show, he actually saved my life through the way that he manipulated the manual lens when we were in the North Atlantic. It was very rough, like the worst conditions I've ever flown in, the hairiest flying I've ever done. And thanks to Hoser's skill, I'm with you today. So finished up that tour and things just got better and better. And that's sort of the theme of my Navy career. I went to be a RAG instructor. So left VF-143, went to VF-101, RAG instructor. It's a team of all-stars over there, just fantastic. And at this point, I just made lieutenant commander. And so got to work with the best across the flight line from all the squadrons because you can't get RAG orders unless you're, you're good. So this really is an all-star team. And then I got to meet all the students, including the folks who are returning to be skippers and executive officers of squadrons. So the networking uh, potential of being a RAG instructor is huge. And so that, that worked very much to my benefit because, well, I had a shortstop on my way back to my department head tour. I wound up being the aide to the commander of the Air Force's Atlantic, a guy named Tony Less, that was yanked out of the RAG to go be his aide for nine months, which turned out to be a good experience. And I actually got to keep flying with him. Admiral Les was a three-star. This is back when both Airpac and Airland were three stars. Now Airpac is the three-star, Airland is the two-star. Airpac is the Airbus. But back in those days, they were both three stars. So Admiral Les had been the CEO of the Blue Angels and some other cool jobs. Great pilot, A7 guy, but he knew his way around every airplane. So when we would travel places, we'd fly F-14s. So I got to, I just show up to the squadron and, and basically I've flown every airplane across the East Coast F-14 flight line, even if I wasn't assigned to that squadron. So I'd show up, I'd probably know the skipper. They'd be happy that I didn't have to use one of the squadron Rios to take the Admiral and do the care and feeding in the Admiral. I was a RAG instructor, so they trusted me and it was really fun. So we'd go all kinds of places in the F-14. Something you can't do these days, by the way because of concerns about misuse of funds and training and so forth and so on. So three stars aren't allowed to fly Tomcats around anymore like we got to. So I was there in a good time. So I left my RAG tour or my A job, went to my department head job. And because I had been the Admiral's aide, I was able to sort of synthesize the orders I wanted. So I wound up going to VF-102. Again, they just got F-14 Bs. So brand new Bs aboard 
a pretty old aircraft carrier, the USS America, conventional carrier, on its last deployment, but we wound up fighting the Bosnian conflict in 1995. And so the Hornets were bombing Sarajevo. We were doing a lot of reconnaissance flights using the TARPS pod around Bosnia, Bosnia-Herzegovina. And in short order, we got the Serbs to break the siege of Sarajevo, saved a lot of lives, and were able to uncover things like the mass graves at Perigador and some other things like that. So that was a very intense deployment. We broke all existing records for F-14 flight hours and sortie counts, pulled into Trieste a bunch, basically stayed in the Adriatic except for one quick jaunt again to the, the Gulf to do Operation Southern Watch, the patrolling of the no-fly zone south of the 33rd parallel over southern Iraq. And we were on the night page there. We would fly from midnight to noon. The Air Force would fly from noon to midnight. Did that for a couple of weeks. And then we got called back to the Adriatic because the Serbs were threatening to do some other misdeeds. And we stymied that and wound up pulling in Trieste a, a, a number of times uh, during that, that cruise. So good times, great squadron, VF-102. And I was the operations officer, so... I was involved in writing the flight schedule every day and flying very much. I flew with the XO. It was a Top Gun instructor named Kurt Dale, call sign Kraut. Great guy. So that was a blast. Again, theme, I'm getting having more and more fun as I get senior, which normally people will say, your best tour is your nugget tour, and that's not true for me. Um, and so along the way, I'm getting smarter and smarter on this airplane. The other thing about my time in the F-14 is I – because I was from, you know, started flying it in '83 and, and kept flying till '98, I covered all the various missionaries that the F-14 was involved in. So when I started flying, it was the premier air-to-air -air platform, and we were doing sort of fleet air defense using the Phoenix missile. That was our core competency. But by the time we got to Bosnia, we were a conventional bomber, and then the year after that, they slapped a landing pod on the F-14. And then we got F-14 upgrades, which had the programmable TID, tactical information display, and we became a precision guided bomber. So I left my department head tour, but stayed in that same air wing. They retired America, they decommissioned America, and we went aboard the George Washington. And I became the air wing operations officer, still flying with the squadron I was attached to, but now I'm responsible for the operations of all the squadrons including the helicopter squadron, in Air Wing 1. So our battle group commander, now known as the strike group commander, was Admiral Mike Mullen, later chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You guys may recognize his name. He's actually in that picture where they're doing the bin Laden raid, and he's in the tank with Hillary Clinton and President Obama and Biden and all the gang there. He's in the back of the room watching that operation. He was the chief guy in planning that operation. So Great guy, great to work with when it gets uh, intense. He's very stoic and very decisive. I remain close to him here in Annapolis. But in any case, another great deployment. We were doing Operation Southern Watch and, again, flying very much, high op tempo, and covering our bases there for the Joint Task Force uh, as one of their assets doing Operation Southern Watch, patrolling in the no-fly zone. So came back from that. And left flying life, wound up teaching at the U.S. Naval Academy, my alma mater. My family lived on the Naval Academy grounds for the duration of that tour. And then I retired out of that job, 
went to the dot-com, very unorthodox pivot, based on the Punk series. So at this point, I published, or the Naval Institute Press, rather, had published Punk's War, came to the attention of the founder of Military.com. He's like, hey, come be my editor. So Military.com at that time was located in San Francisco. My wife was not terribly interested in moving to San Francisco from our house in the D.C. area. So the founder, Chris Michael, who was actually a P3 guy when he was in the Navy, went to Harvard, got his MBA, and founded Military.com. He's like, you don't have to move to San Francisco, work remotely, and then come out here once a month for a week, and we'll do meetings. And and so that was another eye-opener in terms of how does the dot-com work, and I stayed close to the military in my capacity as the editor of Military.com that was growing fast and remains the biggest military website on the web. So I did that for nine years, including I embedded with the 101st Airborne and other forces in Afghanistan in 2010. So I got to see the war up close and personal, interviewed General McChrystal in Kabul right before he got fired for that Rolling Stone article, um, which I saw him later and reminded him of that fact. And he wasn't terribly happy to be reminded of that, believe it or not. Um, And so um, then bounced around some other websites. We Are the Mighty. I founded that with Paul Zolder, who's now the editor-in-chief of Task and Purpose. Uh, That was in Hollywood and ran a military spouse website here in Annapolis, and then uh, accepted a job at the Naval Institute, which is a not-for-profit located on the Naval Academy grounds. And as I've already mentioned, the Naval Institute Press was my publisher for the original hardback version of Punk's War, and now they are my publisher again for the reissued trilogy of the first three Punk books. So I only work there part-time now because of the YouTube channel, um, and, uh, as you mentioned, I have a YouTube channel that really is my, I'm pouring my heart and soul into it and, uh, trying to keep it growing and, and, and keep it interesting. And, you know, that's a, that's a full-time job that I'm doing. That's a never ending you know, battle. So I'm, 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 it's a never ending battle, right? I mean, as soon as you make something live, it's like, okay, what's next? What's next? Um, yeah. but I've been in the content creation space for as long as I've been out of the Navy you know, and or as long as I've, you know, I've been out of the Navy doing that as long as I was in the Navy, I think is what I'm trying to say. So I accept the challenge. I accept it as a writer. I accept it as a creative person. And I accept it as a guy who loves what I was able to do in uniform in naval aviation. Um, and so that that's what brings me to to BVR and and you guys. Well, and congratulations, 152,000 subscribers. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah awesome. and if, it's it's amazing if you consider this time last year, I had eight. Right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's been a rocket ship. Um, and uh, I, I it's sometimes, sometimes I can't believe it. It is overwhelming, um, you know, and you have to take your, your potential impact seriously. Um, you have to get it right, you know, because they'll – the, the viewers and commenters will keep you honest, as you guys know, intimately. I want to say that so they will probably try to add uh, another area that you mentioned, which would be a DCS. And uh, Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the whole idea of BVR is we're trying to get people like you with immense experience in different posts and, and knowledge of different airframes, aircraft operations, etc., carrier operations, and, and getting them as close as possible to the DCS players. So to bridge the gap, so to say, between the two groups. Uh, and I think that nobody else has been doing that before. So we hope to get you more involved in the DCS. So I have yeah. done some 
I, I've done some, uh, you know, Zoom calls with squadrons, with, with virtual squadrons. Uh, and I will tell you what impresses me about DCS is the realism, you know, and, and, and so if you watch a tutorial on YouTube, um, and some of them are hours long, um, or if you interface with DCS players who are serious about their craft as a simulated aviator, and the ones I've been lucky enough to interface with are serious about it. They have squadron organizations. You know, you have an OPSO, you have a schedule officer, you have a maintenance officer, you have a CO, they have call signs. Uh, they have all the rig that we, you know, we've talked about and they want to get it right. And so they ask me questions during these interfaces that reminds me of when I was a Cat 1 student. You know, expressions I haven't heard since the height of my time flying the F-14. Like, what do you do with the jam jet knob? Or when you come out of the notch, what mode do you like to be in? You know, what's your azimuth scan? What do you do with the, the V sub C, you know, switch? All these things. And then I'll do a little bit of research based on those questions. And I realize that the accuracy is off the page. Like if we were having this conversation in 1987, DCS would be classified. You know, and as as BD and you guys know, getting it right is not optional. So with that as the predicate, I am all in. And what this has done is it has unlocked all kinds of parts of my brain, you know, terms and skills that were long dormant because life goes on are now awakened. And that's very exciting for me to to be involved in a more deliberate and direct way. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, I, I kind of have the same problem coming from flying Apaches and Kiowas is I get these questions from people. And a lot of times it's so in the weeds that it's things it's like, I don't even know that, you know, like that's so long ago I've dumped that information or it's something that was so minuscule that you barely, it was barely a thing you know, but then suddenly you got 50 people asking you about this thing. You're like, it's not a big deal. Like, don't worry about it. Um, so it, it's funny to, to hear you say that uh, in some ways as well. And then, like you said, too, that it's it's hard to balance that. I want to share and I want to help you get better, but I don't want to help you that much because, yeah, now we're getting into the realm of like, eh, am I going to get in trouble for this? And uh, it, it, it is challenging, especially when you get into the technology, because, you know, I, I think to some extent the the tactics, right, the employment, you know, it, it, you can kind of fudge that pretty easy. But, yeah, this switch, this range, this, you know, whatever widget is going to do something. And, yeah, that's that's tough sometimes to skirt that. Yeah. So I, I had that conversation with Jello um, and and I know that he, like you, is concerned about, you know, levels of classification. No. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to you know, hazard national security uh, as I grow my YouTube channel. Um, but I, if somebody asked me a question like about the notch or, you know, F or aim 54 ranges, you know, we're talking about a legacy system. Um, and the other thing is they come to me with their kneeboard cards. Um, and, you know, so we can dance around whether the term notch is classified or not, or whether, you know, Top Gun com brevity terms are classified, um, but they know them. They're out there. If you Google them, they're they're you know on the web. So um, I, I 
I kind of think if it's in the public space that it's not a breach of security to, uh, you know, speak to it. Um, and plus, I'm talking about information that, you know, was dated in 1998. Yeah. You know, so I don't know anything about AMRAM. I don't know anything <laughs> about uh, JSF. Um, I mean, I know some things, but n- yeah. nothing uh, yeah. to the degree of intimacy that I know I knew the F-14. Um, so, again, what I what I am energized about, uh, to your point, Cosmo, is um, these guys come to you with with this sort of unfiltered enthusiasm. Yeah. Right. And so I accept that, you know, uh, unconditionally and categorically. Yeah, you I don't want to crush. Yeah. <laughs> crush. Right. Yeah. But to your point, um, when somebody starts mansplaining me about how good the F-14 IFF interrogator is mm. because it works 4-0 in DCS, I have to kind of go, you know, that air, that is, it was actually a piece of junk in the real airplane. <laughs> and, that is, <laughs> you know, and that is why we got all the crummy missions mm. in Desert Storm. Mm. You know, not to mention we rejected the joint arena to the degree that we cut off our nose to spite our face. But, you know, to your point, you'll have guys stressing about, like the V sub C switch. I'm like, I never even touched that thing. Right. I got 20 hours in the airplane. I never touched that switch, <laughs> you know, and they're talking about ground load clutter and all this other stuff. I'm like, it's binary. Either the radar is working or it's broken, right. you know. Um, and so somewhere between, you know, our practical hard-bitten fleet experience and their quixotic DCS antiseptic zeal lives, right. you know, where we can meet. And, and, and so I, I'm happy to uh, try to provide some perspective or context without crushing enthusiasm. Because yeah. I think too often I might just go, you know, why don't you guys get out of your basement for Christ's sakes? You know, I, I don't want to do any of that, yeah. you know, because again, I love the fact that the airplane is alive in this community. Yeah. I mean, the Tomcat is not dead. And this is why I've been telling everybody from Admiral Winnefeld to whoever I run into at, at Tailhook. Like the F-14 is alive, ladies and gentlemen. You know, the Tomcat Association should get smart on the fact that the F-14 is alive and vibrantly so in DCS. You know, and that's what I hope to do with my version of, uh, of the game with BD going forward is provide the street cred of the Mooch brand, such as it is, uh, with a kick-ass version of DCS, and and you know see where it goes from there. Well, it's it's sharing that culture and and in a way your legacy in a, in a sense because you're sharing something that was very intimate. Obviously, a huge part of your life. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about what I do and and why I started my channel and and doing the the podcast and stuff. It's like because you do see. The people on the outside, they want to know so much on the inside, but all they have are, you know, some books or some movies to watch. And it's like, okay, but there's some nuance there that you're missing. And so it's good to have someone from, from your community that's able to, to share that and kind of go a little bit deeper into stuff. And, and exactly, it's like things like that. I mean, I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I had some sort of conversation about somebody mentioning some sort of switch or something you're like man i don't even know where that switch is like i don't you know we didn't use that we didn't use that function or whatever or it never worked in the first place and things like that so so it's it's good to kind of hear that from the other side as well yeah and then also the tomcat specifically the the real responsibility piece i think there was some confusion or some stereotypes 
in terms of lead follow. Um, and I know Bio's done a lot to to dismiss some of that stuff over the course of, of his post-Navy life, not to mention what he did when he was in the Navy. Bio was one of my mentors early on um, in, in terms of Rio attitudes towards co-pilot duties in the ACM arena, not to mention being really good in the backseat and knowing everything about everything. You know, don't take anything for granted. Get in the books, practice in the simulator. In our case, it was the 15C9. Um, and Or what was the backseat simulator? It wasn't the 15C9, it was the front seat simulator. But, you know, run intercepts, hit the pubs, hit the tack pubs, so forth and so on. So what I've heard on the margins with some of these virtual squadron interfaces is Rio's kind of living in the shadow of pilots. And, and I, I don't accept that in the F-14. Um, and so that's why I did the real responsibilities episode of the channel, um, which is one of my DCS facing episodes. And, and, you know, I've done a few that are not didactically about DCS, but to BD's point before we got on air here, the DCS community has glommed onto some of these uh, in a way that makes me understand what they would be looking for in terms of advice or experiences that I can can put forward. So, you know, it's a whiteboard chalk talk about intercept timelines I did, which kind of put on my rag instructor hat and, and drew up the, the timeline, the BVR timeline, pun intended. Um, and uh, rear responsibilities, in-flight refueling. That's another one I did kind of with an eye on, on the DCS community. Um, again, because it's so realistic that things like, you know, plugging techniques and rudder versus lateral stick matter in DCS. And, and so uh, they love that kind of thing. Rendezvous. I talked about how to be a good wingman. And what that is, is basically how to get on bearing line and get aboard, you know, safely, but also swiftly. Um, and, and so these kinds of episodes, I know through the comments and other things I see on Discord chat rooms or whatever, is, uh, is very uh, much used by the DCS community. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'm always keeping in my mind, what is it that I could do, you know, all things being equal with a, you know, blank editorial calendar. Here's my editorial calendar, <laughs> right? Um, you know, what, what can I do that the DCS community might, might find useful? You know, and again, this is why I want to actually be smart on DCS firsthand, have, have my rig so that I can go, oh, this is, you know, what, what I, I think I know as having flown the airplane that maybe a DCS player would want to know. So since I'm on that topic, some of the things that I've seen in DCS from watching videos, YouTube videos of DCS missions are, it's a highly accurate and realistic simulation, but some players don't treat it as such. And that, that to be candid, pisses me off, <laughs> you know? So I know it's a joke about how Jester punches out all the time or whatever. Um, there's a prominent YouTube host that also thought it was kind of funny to punch out of the back of an F-14 just randomly. And that tweaks me because now you're not treating the simulator like the real airplane. You know, and I learned that lesson in the Tomcat simulator one time where me and another Rio were, were goofing off, waiting for our pilots to show up. And a pilot from a different squadron who couldn't see us 
didn't know we were two Rios and we crashed the airplane and he got on the intercom and he shit on us for crashing the airplane and not ejecting. And, and he was seriously laying into us like, who are you guys and what's your problem? And don't you know, you just crashed a $42 million airplane and blah, blah, blah. We're like, pilot. Uh, we're both Rios. Yeah, we're not pilots. We're Rios. You know how many like, oh. billions of dollars have been trashed in this year so far? Yeah, yeah. Person yes, personally, exactly, I've right? so, lost millions. Yeah, so I mean, if, again, it, yeah. it's one thing to depart the airplane and crash. It's another thing to intentionally crash or eject just because. Right. Um, and, and so the so that's part A. Part B is the difference between descriptive and directive comms. So in the ACM arena, I'm hearing a lot of superfluous and trivial chatter between cockpits and between airplanes. So, you know, my recommendation to DCS players is watch some of the videos about comm brevity. And come within the cockpit between seats in terms of tandem airplanes, F-14, F-14s or, uh, you know, whatever other modules we have that have tandem. I guess, is there an F-4? There's an F-4 module, right? Oh, oh you've um, hit a source. No, there. not yet. <laughs> not yet. Oh. And we wish. Um, so, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we don't have Strike Eagle. We don't have Super Hornet Fs. We just have... Legacy Hornets, right? Strike Eagles um, in the so, making. And we'll have Apache. Okay. okay. Cool. <laughs> okay, beauty. Uh, so, again, between cockpits, between airplanes, comm brevity, and the difference between descriptive and directive comm. I watched some ACM videos, and there's just so much chatter going on. Um, it's just this running dialogue that that is maddening to me. Right. So, again, what I would say is tighten it up. You know, you're either directing the pilot's eyes onto something or you're flying the airplane because he doesn't see it. So that's descriptive and directive comms. And this includes the comm brevity for intercepts. And that's why I did that BVR timeline episode to talk about sort, notch, Fox 1, Fox 2, just comm brevity. You don't want to key the radio and sit there and breathe for 30 seconds, which some people tend to do <laughs> in DCS. Right? In real life, so too. Let's be fair. These, <laughs> no, I, 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 right. As soon as you pull that, so that mic that switch, you, you decouple the brain from the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so in the debrief, you you get on that person's case, yeah. right? And right. they wouldn't do it for very long before uh, there were consequences, yeah. right? Um, anybody who has a sense of being professional would not want to be that guy. Uh, and, and in the face of constructive white hat criticism, you'd take it for action. So... I think, and this is what I say to some of the squadrons is, you know, debriefs matter. You know, make sure your debrief is thorough. I talk about the spaghetti on your kneeboard card. In addition to the replay on DCS, don't be a tax cripple, as we used to call people that just waited to go to the tax debrief to see what happened. And what will happen at Top Gun is before they start to roll the digital presentation is they'll go around the room and go, okay, first intercept, what happened? Pilots and Rios. And you got to have it on your kneeboard, right? Granular, altitudes, airspeeds, ranges, what, 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 you know, the attitude was. And so that's a real art is how to take good notes in the airplane between engagements 
And when you find somebody who knows how to do it, it is eye-watering. You know, Snort Snodgrass was that guy who first showed me that you can memorize a whole lot with very little spaghetti on your kneeboard card that is scrawled in between engagements when you're trying not to have a midair with your wingman. You know, and, and so this is what I've said to some VV squadrons about, okay, do you guys take notes in between the engagements or you just go into the debrief and roll the after action tape? Because if you're not taking notes, then you're not replicating a real squadron. And you'll find your recall will make you a better ACM pilot the next go round. And so that kind of feedback is what the players really like. Because as we're saying, Cosmo and others, the, the question is, is, am I doing it right? Is this right? Is this, is this how you do it if you were in the real airplane? Yeah. Um, and so I, I want to be able to answer that, um, you know, accurately to include, okay, you're making a big deal about something that we don't even care about. So stop that. Yeah. Right. Um, I, so I think you've hit uh, an important part too of, of aviation and certainly military aviation is, is communications. You know, I tell guys that the, the stick wiggling is the easy part. I mean, flying is not hard. And, and using the systems is generally not hard, but being able to have that air sense and understand your environment without actually seeing it is hard. And being able to communicate that quickly and effectively is hard. Um, you know, like I was, I was talking to my dad the other day, I was talking about air traffic control and I was like, you know, it's like every word means something and, and the absence of words also means something. And so being able to understand that flow, that energy, um, very quick, very terse is important and you're right you know and we all kind of kind of fall into it you get lazy you just start getting a little bit too verbose but um yeah when you're i imagine in a dogfight or dogfight but you know certainly same same with attacking ground targets it's like i'm trying to focus on something i don't have time to hear you know somebody's life story it's like get the information out quick and let's get it done because i'm trying to focus because otherwise i'm probably not listening to you anyway you know at that point i'm just i'm just moving the airplane and uh and you're just talking to no one so yeah so that's huge well, I remember coming out. I remember coming out of my approach magazine tour to VF one forty two as a cat to a super JO, and the air to air arena had changed massively in the in, between nineteen eighty seven and nineteen ninety one, um, and I did an intercept on the wing of a guy who's fresh back from Top Gun, a guy named John Paganelli who passed away from cancer a few years ago. Mm. In fact, Pags became a pilot. He was a retread. He was a Rio that became a pilot. And he was pulled out of VF-143 shortly after I got there to go to flight school and be, be a pilot. He wound up being a Hornet pilot. Um, and he was exo of VX-23 at Pax River and unfortunately uh, got cancer and passed away. Great guy. But an awesome, and in fact, his brother-in-law was one of my pilots in my first tour, a guy named Mark Seaman. Um, and more, more de detail than we need. But... But Pags, I, I was on his wing, and he barely said anything during this intercept. And I got back, I was just like, oh, my God, I, I've got to get my act together. And to your point, Cosmo, I need to say less, right? The, the silence is where the professionalism lives. Yeah. It's a premium of words. And I realized I had a lot of catching up to do, you know, this gift of being a super J.O., and I got there in a very unorthodox way. Most super JOs were either from center of excellence like VX4 or Top Gun or PMTC or the RAG. Here I come from Approach Magazine, you know. Um, and so I, I did get my act together, but that was a real eye-opener, you know, 
listening to how little Pag said in that first intercept. Well, I think what we need to do is to, uh, as at the episode notes, put the list of those episodes you would recommend mostly. I have lots of good stuff on your channel, but that will be most appealing to the DCS players who can provide that. Um, and then other thing I was thinking about is, well, you can give a, certainly give a lot to those visual squadrons, squadrons with your knowledge and experience, but maybe they could give something back. I was thinking DCS with its outstanding graphics and how it looks. Maybe you could use some of the footage that they could record for you for some of your stories mm. that you describe using the modules we have. Well, I have pirated... Um, some DCS footage for some of my episodes lately, particularly the VF1 MI8 shoot down. That was, I just searched, uh, you know, Desert Storm Tomcat kill on YouTube, and somebody created a very cool simulation um, using DCS. And so I, I just basically scraped some parts of that and, and put it into the narrative with a disclaimer or something that said digital simulation. And then I gave that YouTuber credit in the description of the episode. I've also done that for um, other times when I'm talking about the radar or even the episode about the surface warfare officer accidentally ejecting during a fam ride. I show you the eject, the command lever going back and forth. That's from... Uh, the backseat ground school um, episode where, you know, it's the cockpit fam and, and, you know, the, the, the guy shows you that, that lever going back and forth. So I just scraped that one little bit of footage as I'm talking about the difference between pilot and MCO uh, selection of that lever. And then some stuff like the Achille Laro incident. I, I, I used some DCS footage for some of that and, and made it look like it was night instead of daytime. So, uh, but I, I think you're right, BD, with respect to if I had a specific ask, um, you know, I know that they could, they could deliver. It's just great stuff. You know, one thing that um, I know that BD and uh, Hoser and Jello have been talking about is the next iteration they're going to do for the Hornet, which is going to include some training components. And one of the challenges that I think when I look at the uh, F-14, to your point, it's extremely sophisticated and trying to learn that system is hard. And, and I, you know, and again, not to, you know, just as an idea, one thing that might be helpful as you look at different content pieces that you can create is what would a learning syllabus look like for folks that are getting up to speed and trying to help them because there might be a handful of tutorials out there, but, you know, and I think it was Paca who said, hey, sometimes it looks like people are Braveheart running after each other. But how do we, how do you learn to use the tools? And then how do you, um, you know, and then how do you employ them? And I think that's part of it. And it doesn't have to get classified, but, you know, from zero to, uh, to actually being, um, somebody that can use the tools effectively, I think that'd be really great for the community. No, I agree. I agree. And and that's what I would hope to do is put on my rag instructor hat, you know, and simplify a complicated system. You know, it's crawl, walk, run, you know, and, and uh, I, I was never a, a details guy necessarily. 
you know, so if I can do it, there are anybody can do it, let's say. Um, and but what I do know is how to separate chaff from wheat or how to prioritize things in the moment, particularly, which is important when you're, you know, hurtling against your enemy at 1500 knots or whatever. Um, and and so what I see in some of these DCS tutorials is, you know, too much detail. Right. It's just they, they are obsessed yeah. by the minutia yeah. to Cosmo's point. Uh, that's what I see. And it's it's kind of like uh, doing this. Look what I know stuff. Yeah. You know, even in the case of the a fleet experience Rio that does this cockpit fan that lasts two hours. It's like, you know, to some degree, 75 percent of what you're talking about doesn't matter in the course of running an intercept or being a good fleet Rio. Yeah. You know, maybe that's too high of a percentage. But what I would do in that is talk about your basic radar modes, talk about where you want to put the radar, because I don't see anything about that. Yeah. Right. Uh, the basic about azimuth gates, range selection, you know, mode agility, how to how to run an intercept. I don't see anything about intercept geometry. Um, and I don't see a whole lot about co-pilot duties along the way. And so that's that's what what I would do with a mooch DCS primer of of both yep. front and back seat. You know, I and, and I I'm I, I can fly the front seat. I'm very front seat literate as a function of being a rag instructor. You have to know the front seat better than the rag student you're flying with. You absolutely do. Um, also, I was low power turn quality when I was the maintenance officer for VF 102. So I know how to start the airplane up, including all of to get the wings out, bump the spoilers, DLC, go through all the routine. I know how to do all of that as well. Um, so, and I've got a lot of simulator time, as all good Rios do, in the front seat simulator of the F-14, including the carrier simulator. Because um, again, I, I wanted to be literate in the front seat before I told the pilot anything. And uh, because of the gift of having four squadron tours and a CAG ops tour. I homesteaded at Oceana for the bulk of my career for 15 of my 20 years um, and just got really smart on the F-14, both cockpits. Um, it was my office for for years and years. And uh, so this is what I'd want to bring to, again, as we've already said, as we unlock this part of my brain to Cosmo, as Cosmo was saying, you know, it's it's long dormant. You know, somebody will say something about a coolie hat or a weapon system or a phase of flight. And you're like, you're like Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? <laughs> Who've, who's been called Ben Kenobi for all these years. And and then, you know, Luke shows up. He's like, hey, aren't you a kick-ass Jedi? You're like, as a matter of fact, I am, you know? And, and so that's kind of how I feel when, when I'm interfacing with, uh, with DCS players, you know, which is a great feeling because I, I do know this stuff. Um, I just, Got to remind myself that I know it. Rob, I want to say something, too, to kind of go with your question. I don't remember exactly your question was asked, but it made me think about it. And I think Mooch will probably agree with me on this. There is a lot of focus on the minutia. And just like you said, and I get it all the time, too, with Apache and stuff. It's like, oh, what is this button? What is this button? Checklists. Checklists are your friends. And I think that mm -hmm. that's another thing that, in general, the DCS community could probably help themselves out with. Because... You know, the thing is, you know, Mooch, he spent a lot of time in the F-14. He, 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 he was focused on flying the F-14 
if you're a standard DCS player, you got like 20 different modules, right? And it's like one week, it's like, oh, I'm going to be an F-16 pilot this week. And oh, I'm going to go fly the hind, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it's like everyone's trying to do it by memory. And then it's a game of showing off. Like, oh, look, how I can I can cold start the A-10 by memory. Well, do you think A-10 pilots do that? Like, they use a checklist. Like, I could I could rattle off right. the Kiowa startup for you right now. I haven't, I haven't started one of those in over 10 years. I could rattle it all off to you. If I was sitting in one, you know what I'd do? I'd pull out the checklist. And so... I think it is a lot of we're using a lot of our brain power and our bandwidth to learn stuff that you know that even the real guys don't learn. You know, you learn it through doing, but you don't focus. Nobody goes home and says, like, "Well, let me memorize the startup checklist for the F-14." No one does that um, unless you play DCS. Then sometimes you do. Um, and so, yeah, you're wasting a lot of bandwidth learning this stuff that that the mooches of the world don't care about because they're cared about how to employ the aircraft and how to communicate smartly and how to do all that kind of stuff. Which again. Yeah you don't know unless you've had to do it. And so I think, yeah, exactly. Channels like that. And I try to do it on mine. It's like, that's where you can kind of learn some of that nuance of like, okay, well, cool. You've learned how to start it, but now what do you say to the guy in the other seat? And what do you say to the guy in the other cockpit? So yeah, checklists are your friends. There's no shame in it. I use a checklist every single time I fly. Well, and and I'll tell you what, I think that's a really good point because, you know, as as I said, I've got two seven-year-old boys. My time is limited. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, I can sit there and and I. It was interesting. I was watching Ralphie dude uh, is a ten hmm. tutorial, and I thought it was great. And I, but in and what I ended up doing, and he says you need to write these things down, and I made a checklist, yeah. and it's on a piece of paper to do it. But to your point, and maybe it exists today, just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Hmm. But you know, what does that te- checklist look like? Because I think because at the end of the day, if I have X amount of time, how is that best spent? Right. And I'd rather have a checklist and then have the knowledge, for example, from Mooch of going, okay, look, here's how you want to run this intercept. And, you know, because reading it out of it, I'm not going to read it out of NATOPS or, or, you know, it's just not going to spend the time doing it. So how do you get the most practical and fun time? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you want to enjoy the time you're doing it. And then to your point, in you know, you learn these things by repetition. I'm not going to be doing it every day for, you know, for two months. Yeah, You walk away so, from a month, you've forgotten yeah, how yeah. to do it. Um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we have a saying, I don't know if it's Army Aviation, maybe they said it in the Navy too, that's like, talk about there's only so many penguins I can put on this iceberg. And that's really what it boils down to with me. It's like, I can remember <laughs> how to start this aircraft or I can remember, how to, I can't do both, you know, so. Well, the other thing about is this how it is in the real airplane is we don't memorize checklists. We right. memorize bold fa- face items right. in checklists. Emergencies. Right? So, yeah. uh, you know, are you guys quizzing each other, you know, on the bold face? Because I'd rather see somebody who's deep in four platforms than somebody who's cursory in a dozen on DCS. Yeah. You know, so if, if you're trying to wow me by how many different type model series you you fly that's one thing but what i'd like to see is i'm really deep on two or three you know which replicates a fleet aggressor pilot who maybe flies f5s a4s and f16s at the most right right? and so um if you're a squadron ops officer or uh, you know virtual squadron ops officer can you fashion a poor man's pocket checklist using available resources on the web for whatever airplane you guys fly. Um, and then make sure that your aviators are using that. Um, and I think in that way, you'll start to realize 
where you're focused to our point of what you should be focused on. Memorizing checklists or memorizing start procedures is not where you should be focused. Why? Because guys with 3,000 hours in the airplane do not memorize the start checklist. They break open their PCL and they go through it very deliberately, just like airline pilots go through it very deliberately, challenge and response in some cases every time. So that's, you know, is this how they do it in the fleet? That's a good example of how you do it in the fleet. The other thing with respect to flight discipline, I'd like to see DCS players hit their numbers, right? Capture the altitude, capture the airspeed, and and not just fly through the sky like they own the whole, you know, cosmos like that. Um, and I think in so doing, you'd become a better DCS player, which is to say a better virtual aviator. You know, again, we don't just take off and go wherever we want um, out of an air, air, air base or off the carrier. You know, and I see too many DCS players that are just like, I own the planet. Um, again, I'm not trying to be the fun <laughs> police, but I'm not saying don't have fun with DCS. I, I'm just imagining that you want to be that fun equals doing it right and professionally, you know, in addition to kicking ass and so forth. Well, and, and that's an interesting, uh, and let me ask you, so it's a good segue of, you know, as you're looking as I know you and BD are working on ca- uh, the concepts of the campaign that you're working on. Can you give us a preview of some of the thoughts or directionally where you want to go with that? I don't know, BD, can we talk about it? Yeah, I think, I think we can. I mean, there's not much we've discussed so far. We, we've been more yeah, thinking. so this is really, this is early brainstorming. Um, we were thinking that we would do a Strait of Hormuz campaign, which is a you know carrier transit through the Strait and uh, into the Gulf. So coming out of the North Arabian Sea into the Gulf, something I've done countless times. Very hairy evolution, and now you add to it a hostile Iran. So th- there's some things we take for granted with respect to having uh, dominion or having a permissive environment to get us through that, that straight, which is seriously a choke point, to put it mildly. Um, so if they came at you with a sea land air threat coordinated, um, if they had some ally you know, in the, the Middle Eastern world that wanted to make it a dual axis threat, now you've got a serious challenge for the DCS player. And so this would be a... You know, radar picture, comm drill, responding with myriad weapons. In the case of the Tomcat, you'd have, you know, it would be like a strike cap mission where you have the ability to take out surface threats with conventional bombs like Rock Eye or 20 millimeter nose cannon, and also air to air threats using winders, sparrows, and even Phoenix. Um, and maybe you flex to a strike mission using Lantern. So it can really employ every element of the circa 1997 F-14B upgrade. Um, so that's the scenario we were, we're, we're toying with. Um, and it really does present, um, you know, there'll be, there'd be a heavy tanker because you've got to be airborne for six hours. As the carrier transits the Gulf, you're not doing cyclic ops because the carrier can't turn into the wind. So you launch before you get into that window and you don't land until the carrier has sea room on the other side 
is when it's in the Persian Gulf proper. So got to hit the tanker three, four times, you know, KC-135. Got to coordinate with the AWACS and the E-2 in terms of the air picture and the surface picture as well. You're talking to the small boys, Alpha Whiskey, Alpha Sierra. You know, the Iranians have submarines for crying out loud. You know, there, there could be some a lot of cool stuff that we could throw in there. So in terms of the communications and the various weapons that you'd use and the excitement of this scenario, we think it's a winner. Well, that sounds fantastic. With the six-hour missions, we'll probably have to have a few air start missions, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Maybe four or five. <laughs> That's the one thing that yeah. the DCS community yeah. also doesn't really want to replicate. It says it does till it doesn't, is... Uh, the fact that you fly six, eight hours and nothing happens for, you know, seven hours and 50 yeah. minutes, but then there's 10 minutes of excitement. Right. You know? Again, it's like, it's hey, like, you, you get all of how it. How is this in real life? <laughs> yeah. Like, right. Yeah. You don't want to replicate the, you yeah. know, hours of boredom, punctuated yeah. punctuated by, you know, moments, moments of, of sheer, sheer terror. terror. Yeah. Right. I, um, I have a, oh, I was going to say, I just have something of a tangential question. Was there ever uh, just, was there ever friction between uh, the E2 uh, and the F-4 team in terms of owning, uh, you know, uh, the picture? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and sometimes it, it did reach the point where you had to, um, you know, debrief that part. Um, and, and so generally um, the relationship between the E-2 NFOs and the um, – the Tomcat guys was fantastic. And those guys were great. They were really great. Um, and sometimes you had to be subordinate in that they probably see more than you do. Well, they definitely saw more than we did, right? They have a 360 look. It goes, their radar went farther than the AUG-9 generally. Um, and you were looking through a soda straw sometimes, and they're looking at the big picture. So most of the time you'd, um, you know, cede your responsibility to them and do what they ask. So if you're on one vector and they're like, go over here instead, you you were biased to do that. But sometimes, um, you know, and I think the second Gulf of Sidra uh, incident is a good example of a Rio, particularly the lead Rio, um, doing what he wanted in the face of the E2 asking some questions or saying, maybe sit on your hands for a little while. Um, and I'm sure there were some harsh words once they got back aboard the ship, because particularly the E2 squadron was not got, trying to get dragged into, you know, getting called on the carpet by the Admiral, like the Tomcat crew got called on the carpet by the Admiral. Um, so, but I think that in general, um, RG, the, the relationships were, were great. And, and, uh, you know, again, if, if an E2 controller told me, not X, but Y. I I do Y. Cool. Let, let me just one more question, but changing the topic a little bit. If you could tell some more about your Punk Wars, uh, Punk's War trilogy, and you said that first three books. So are there more in the making? I'm just reading through the first one. It's absolutely fantastic to read. Uh, also great, probably. I mean, lots of good material for a campaign for DCS actually, but. Uh, so you have a new version coming up, or re- reprint, so to say? Yeah, so the, re- the, the trilogy, Punk's War, Punk's Wing, and Punk's Fight, have been republished. It, it, they came out uh, on October 15th, um, reissued 
by the Naval Institute Press, which has a sort of spiritual symmetry to it. You know, that's my original publisher. Um, they only published Punk's War. Punk's Wing and Punk's Fight were published by Penguin Putnam up in New York, um, which had its goods and disadvantages. You know, I became a small fish in a big pond instead of the other way around. Um, so it's great to be back home, as it were, with the Naval Institute Press. The books were reissued based on the popularity of the YouTube channel only, solely. That was the demand signal. So I'm very grateful to my subscribers and my casual YouTube viewers uh, for that, let's call it notoriety, and that, that demand signal because it was an easy do for the Naval Institute Press to say, we want to do all three. Now, because Penguin Putnam reverted the rights, not only did they stop printing the books, they also gave me the rights back, which is like the final insult at the time. Um, but it gave us great agility when the head of the Naval Institute Press was like, hey, we not only want to republish, well, Punk's War never went out of print, but they're like, we want to do a new version of Punk's War. Um, originally published in hardback 01, they did a trade paperback in 2014, and now we've done uh, the new version here in 2021. But they also said we want to publish Punk's Wing and Punk's Fight. So boom, there you go. There's a special edition hardback that's available. There's only 250 copies. I think 100 of them have already been sold. Um, that's part of this package as well. But to have these books back in print as an author is almost the best part of this YouTube channel growth. Um, besides, you know, winning hearts and minds and, and, and reaching all kinds of people and hearing from people, uh, you know, this community is big and vibrant and smart and it's a lot of fun. Um, and, and I'm really enjoying it. But... So I started writing Punk's War as a response to all of the techno thrillers that were being written in the mid to late 80s, basically. Um, you know, and, and I was reading them and I was in the business and I didn't recognize anybody in these books. You know, the gear worked perfectly. Everybody loved the skipper. I'm like, what world are these guys? <laughs> not in my military. You know, not in my military, right? So I'm like, I think... I could do a portrayal that explained the reason you should respect the profession, the military, is not because it's like this ninja cast of warriors that's different than you are, Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Public. They're you, you know, flawed, self-centered, misguided, but they possess a drive and a special set of skills to do, you know, Liam Neeson, um, that allows the job to get done. And sometimes, and this is what I was trying to prove with the opening to Punk's War, it comes down to one airplane. The defense of the nation comes down to one working airplane that is loaded with four missiles of which one works. <laughs> so it's not the Tom Clancy scenario where he's launching 12 Tomcats, and they're each launching six Phoenix. That never would happen in the real world. If you have one working Phoenix on one airplane, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> Phoenix is a messy missile, right? And cantankerous. We didn't carry them much because the Ordies hated uploading them and maintaining them, you know? So there's that practical reality as well of what does it take to get a missile on an airplane on a flight deck of which you do not own? You know, you got to work with the ship. 
You got to work with the other squadrons. It's all of this kind of thing. So my naivete and my arrogance allowed me to start to write this novel. It's hard. Writing is so hard. And I didn't realize it till I got going. And I realized that this actually might be something I could finish. <laughs> and then the work really started when we signed the contract with Naval Institute Press in 2000. And they gave me an editor. And he was like my therapist that demanded me to go places that I wasn't inclined to go about the characters and about the detail. And it was, it was painful in some cases to make me go deeper. I'm like, that's all I got. He's like, no, I need more. And, and we would fight it out every night for four months, line by line. I'd give a little on a line of dialogue. He'd, he'd, he'd let me have a win every once in a while. It was intense. It was like goodwill hunting. You know, um, but it was awesome. This guy whose name is Giles Robillier, Kenyan college grad, worked at Proceedings Magazine at the Naval Institute, and they lent him to me as my editor, and he was great. So Punk's War became 100% better book as a function of that process. I learned a lot about book production and iterative, raging through 100,000 words time and time again. Um, and so... I had so much momentum after Punk's War got published to great fanfare because the Naval Institute Press does not do a lot of fiction. In fact, when I was published, they'd only done two other novels. The first novel they ever did was The Hunt for Red October. They created Tom Clancy in 1984. He was an insurance salesman who had this gigantic manuscript that he was shopping around. All the New York houses blew him off and he showed up Entree was given by a nuclear power submarine officer who knew the CEO of the Naval Institute said, hey, check out this book. And they read it and they're like, the first third has got to go. It was all about Ramius and the backstory about his wife being killed, hmm. which they just got rid of and just put the Red October to sea. Hmm. And the book became 100 and some odd thousand words instead of 250,000 words. Hmm. Um, and hmm. boom, he's a rock star. The rest is both techno-thriller and gamer history. Um, I met Tom Clancy before he uh, he passed away. I will say he wasn't a terribly nice guy, um, I'm sorry to say. Um, but uh, unlike the second novel published by the Naval Institute Press, which was Flight of the Intruder by my good friend Stephen Kuhn, who I deer hunted with, and Stephen was a mentor of mine in the early days, very giving, not at all, no pretense with that guy, you know, West Virginia boy um, and called what he did scribbling. He's a scribbler, you know. And so those were the first two novels that the Naval Institute Press had done. And so here comes Punk's War. And when that, you know, it's like it's Capitol Records. They did Sinatra and the Beatles. And here comes this new guy, you know, so you got to listen to him. Right. And so that's kind of what happened to me. So I got a lot of exposure and a lot of reviews and the book came out to great fanfare and did well. Um, and then, you know, I made the mistake of going after the big bucks. And now, you know, it's like I was a big hit in the little city and then I go to New York and I'm just another dude. Um, so the books weren't supported. So but I had a little momentum. So before Punk's War was published, I, had, I was halfway through Punk's Wing. And I knew what I wanted this one to be about. And it also evolved where the female character emerged in a way that I did not intend. So that's kind of the, you know, the craft piece. 
Um, so that book is my longest. I think it's my most complete thought. Um, and I'm very happy that it's back under the umbrella of the Naval Institute Press because now I think it'll be debated and discussed in ways that it wasn't when it was just available as a mass market paperback, you know, in airport kiosks. Um, and so it's one thing to have your book come out 125,000 copies and just shotgunned all over the country. That's cool because I'd hear from people, hey, I was in St. Louis Airport. I saw your book, right? Um, but that lasts about 10 weeks. And then if it doesn't sell, they take it off the shelf, they rip the cover off, and they send it back to the publisher. And so your time to be great is very limited. And if you're not great within that time, your history. So that is kind of what happened uh, with books two and three in the Punk Trilogy. But now, and I was never satisfied that they got their due with respect to the profession with respect to those in the business and those aficionados who want to know more about it. To your point, BD, about you might find some things that we can use in, in the game scenarios. You know, particularly I think Punk's fight lends itself to to some of that. And that's where Punk's at war and he's he no spoilers, but he winds up on the ground with CIA caseworkers and some Green Beret in company with the warlords in the early part of the war in Afghanistan. Um, and that's quite a romp. That book I wrote the quickest and I knew what it was about from end to end more than the other two. Um, so, you know, the books each are distinct. I'm very proud of the trilogy. Um, I wrote two others I'm less proud of. And I was told this by Stephen Koontz. He said, be careful what you wish for because deadlines are tyranny. <laughs> I was like, throw me in that briar patch. And he was right. And so I switched characters from Punk to this guy named Ash Roberts, who's a Navy SEAL. And this is before SEALs were in vogue like they were post 9-11. Um, and, you know, um, it, it, uh, it just didn't work. I wasn't using my voice and I was kind of cliche and formulaic and hackneyed. And I would wake up and I'd hate this landscape I'd created, but I had to hang out with these people all day because I had to finish the book, you know. <laughs> Um, and so that that wasn't a whole lot of fun, particularly the fifth book was was zero fun at the end. Um, and I was so snake bit that I didn't write another word uh, of fiction for another eight years. Um, and so I don't have another punk book in work. I've been working on this other book that's about uh, five Academy grads that reunite and they're all in various stages of a midlife crisis. Um, how do I know these things? Um, and so a psychological um, thriller, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so my agent hates this book. Um, I, I've showed it to some folks in my peer group and they like it, but it'll probably never come out. I wrote it mostly for me. Um, but again, I'm happy that the punks trilogy is alive again because it never really got for all of the numbers that were moved. Uh, it never really got its due. Um, in in the, the places that I think matter. And now it will because it's a Naval Institute press book. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens. It's fun to have the lever of the YouTube channel to promote the book, you know, on my own marketing arm uh, as a function of that. Uh, it'll be available, all three will be available as audiobooks and Kindles now. That's in work very soon. We're just inking the Audible. Um, and by Audible, I don't mean the company Audible, but an audiobook, I should say, um, version of two and three. Uh, one already exists. Um, it was a six cassette box 
um, when it first came out and we've digitized it. Um, I'm not going to read them. I tried doing that. It's really hard and I stuck at it. Um, so I punted that to my agent and we're going to get a real professional to read books two and three. So, you know, again, I'm just overjoyed. And this is what I've heard from folks on the channel that are getting the books now and, and they're loving them. And uh, I'm all new comments on Amazon too. a whole new string of comments on Amazon uh, that are very positive. So that's, that's, you know, I cannot overstate how amazing that part is uh, with respect to the books. But BD, the books are basically an inside look at life in a fighter squadron, both at sea and ashore during wartime and peacetime. And back to my predicate, which is flawed individuals, you know, guys who drink too much, guys who look at porn, guys who cuss, guys who sometimes are doing self over the organization in, in a way that is careerist, particularly the skipper is that kind of a guy, a guy named Soup Campbell, yeah, but the uh, who has a great uh, I'm yeah. reading through the first first part now, I was thinking, is it possible to be a keg and be so incompetent as the keg in, in the book? But it seems <laughs> you can. Well, you can. I mean, uh, I, I in some cases, I lumped all of them in under one umbrella of a story for which I was criticized. Mm. But I'm like, hey, these are my experiences. You know, if you don't like it, write your own book, you know. <laughs> um, but again, I'm trying to prove that real human beings do this job yeah. and the job gets done, you know, because I, I remember being at air shows and the hagiography of the some of the, you know, the fanboys was kind of over the top. You're like, please, you know, stop. You don't know me. Yeah. I'm not, I don't merit the level of hero worship that you're bestowing on me. Yeah. You know, promotion and competency um, aren't always the same thing either. So, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, and by the way, your sister's hot, you know, and so, you know, what's up with that? Right. And so, you know, it's like, you know, it's like sometimes I just felt like a like a fake, you know, and, yeah. and I'd have to go, OK, let's just take it down a notch. Um, this is what I do. And if you want to do it, here's the path to go do it. Um, but I'm not a god. And, and uh, you know, just let's chill. Let's have fun. All right. Thank you very, very much, Mooch, for, for being here and for this super interesting discussion. Uh, we hope to see you more often and doing things together uh, in under umbrella of BVR. And yeah, we're going. We will have him back. We're going to have absolutely. him back for sure. Lots of time. <laughs> well, I, you guys are my heroes, and so I'm here for any way that you need me. As as we've already established, uh, it was great to meet everybody in person at Hook a few months ago. It was a good time in spite of uh, the COVID environment. We made the most of it. Yep. And uh, I look forward to being in company face-to-face -face before too long. But in the meantime, uh, let's, let's be in close touch. Thank you very much, guys. See you. See you. Okay. See you, guys. Thanks for listening to Air Combat Sim. Don't forget to subscribe or tell a friend about it. You have a question, idea for an episode, or a special guest you'd like us to invite? Feel free to reach out on Facebook, Discord, or via email. Air Combat Sim was brought to you by BBR Productions.